Thank you, Gerald, for all the work you do with music. And just, that's a congregation Good stuff, good stuff. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. It's where we left off a couple weeks ago before we had that topical message last week. We'll be returning to this study in Luke. And here we're going to see there's a crucial time for Jesus. Very crucial. Until this point, his disciples, they'd been learners. That's what disciple means, is learner or pupil. Jesus had many, many disciples. Many, many learners who followed him. Uh, But after about 18 months of preaching now, somewhere midway through his life on earth, uh, he's at a crossroads. He, he's, he's been doing his public ministry, and now he's going to choose 12 specific men. 12 specific disciples. He's going to name them apostles or sent ones. And they're going now to, to very intimately share the remainder of his life, all the way up until the cross. And that's where we find verse 12. Jesus is in prayer. I'll read it beginning in verse 12 says it was at this time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose twelve of them, whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, And Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. On a previous occasion, as we've been studying through Luke now, I said that I'd give special treatment to Jesus' custom of prayer. His method of prayer, his style of prayer. Scripture places a special emphasis on Jesus praying during critical times in his ministry. These obviously aren't the only times that Jesus prayed. He prayed very often, prayed many times. In fact, back in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, we saw that that Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Very common for him to pray. But the Luke, uh, the evangelist, he wants us to know, the readers, that at critical junctures we see a specific emphasis in, in Jesus' ministry of prayer. Jesus prayed. Very important uh, as we look at prayer and what, what it is to pray and the meaning of prayer. And we'll continue to do that as we see more and more prayer as we go through Luke. Jesus prayed first at the out, outset of his ministry. We see in Luke when he's, he's baptized by the Holy Spirit as John the Baptist puts him under the water and brings him up. It says that Jesus was praying. Later we'll see that he'll pray on the holy mountain during his transfiguration or at the point of his transfiguration. Jesus prayed a high priestly prayer. That's in John 17. We'll look at that a little bit later. And that was an intercession for his disciples that he was going to leave behind uh, after his departure. And then, of course, probably most renowned is uh, his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane right before, moments before his arrest. It's important for us to take notice, actually look at this, take note, 
during most of the critical occasions, most of the critical times in his life, Jesus prayed alone. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus prayed alone. When he is now uh, in the Gospels entering the shadow of the cross, about to be crucified, uh, Matthew 26, verse 39, he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Always praying in harmony with God's will. At that point, we're told he's, he's deeply grieved. Jesus is deeply grieved, yet he prayed alone. It, it isn't that his disciples weren't available. It isn't that they weren't right there. Actually, James, Peter, and John were, were right nearby. He, he, he told them, sit here while I go over there to pray. Even though within just hours, he would be crucified. be horrific. His crucifixion. Can you remember what we studied back in chapter 5 about prayer? Jesus taught about prayer. Remember the Pharisees, they were criticizing Jesus for not putting on his, his piety on display. Not looking really, really religious in front of everybody as they did. As the Pharisees did. Through routine public prayers. But Jesus taught his disciples in Matthew 6 verse 6 we learned... Don't be like the hypocrites who pray to be seen. When you pray, go into your inner room, close the door behind you, Jesus says, and pray in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will then reward you. Obviously, Jesus isn't abolishing corporate prayer. Group prayer. He's not abolishing that. He, He is speaking to how we conduct ourselves during personal and private prayers. Times that we're alone with God. When, when we need to be alone with God, when there are very critical issues between, between our lives, between our health, be, between whatever situation we're facing, you, you don't have to seek an audience. It's not necessary to seek an audience. There, there is an intimacy that our spirits yearn for with God. An intimacy, especially in times of critical need, that just doesn't need an applause, right? Usually when I pray it's it's early first thing in the morning and, and i know i'll come here and and a lot of times it's still dark out the shades are drawn and there there's nobody around it's very very quiet yet still i naturally close my door to my office before i begin to pray even though nobody's here there's something about the closeness to god that communion with him through prayer and, and i'd like you to notice here that, it, folks, at the most crucial times of our lives, the most crucial, the most demanding, the most painful, all you really need is alone time with God. You and God in prayer. Folks, we, we need to know that God has sovereign control over our situation, over our conditions. He is in control. And we can speak out to Him. We can say, Father, this is my heart. This is very painful or I'm very afraid. I don't even know what I'm facing. I'm grieved. But nonetheless, we can say, not my will, but Thy will. As we pour our hearts out to God. It's important to note as well, before we proceed, Christians, as we pray, we don't adjust God's will to our will. 
That's a common misconception out there. As we pray, we adjust our will to His will. We are adjusting ourselves to God. Uh, This is a mistake so often made today. When we pour ourselves out to God and we're adjusting to His will and what He wants for our life, He provides us the strength, the wisdom, uh, the faith to go through and endure whatever it is that we're facing. We can go through it because He has prepared us to do so. And, and God, He's not our puppet, folks. He's not. He's not our puppet. He, God is our sovereign creator. He's our king. He, he's a creator of the universe. And, and there's this notion that, that if somehow, during critical times, if we just get enough people praying together, if we just get enough people in unison, that, that somehow we can just harness enough horsepower prayer horsepower, and force God to do what we want. No, you can't. You can't. That's, that's complete fiction. You won't find that in the Bible. The scriptural exhortation for us to pray. We can ask whatever we want to ask. We know we can receive it conditionally according to His will. If it is according to God's will. We always see this in Scripture. And we always see this in prayer. We see it with Jesus in His life. It's only in situations that we knowingly pray in harmony with His will. That we know are in harmony with His will. That we can have confidence. Complete confidence that He hears us. And He will answer according to His will. I have people a lot of times ask about Elijah and James, right? James chapter 5. And we've been through this a couple years ago. Uh, that passage in James chapter 5, and it says, well, a righteous man, prayer of a righteous man availeth much, right? And Elijah prayed, and it did not rain, and then he prayed again, and it rained. And often, that is used as an example of if you're just righteous enough that you can get your way, and you can just do whatever you want. You can make it rain, you can control the weather, what have you. That's not factual. If you go and read what James is quoting there, that, that's a quote from 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18. Especially if you look at 1 Kings 18 verse 1. You can see that Elijah there is praying for rain because God said it's going to rain. The word of the Lord had come to Elijah and told him it was going to rain. So what did Elijah do? At the proper time, at the instruction of the Lord, he prayed in harmony with God's will. That's what a righteous man does. And the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. When you're in God's will, you can count on his uh, positive response. Elijah knew he was in God's will. God was speaking directly to him. The power in prayer, it's his, folks. The power is his. It's not ours. We're not unleashing moonbeams to God through our fingertips in order to force him what, what we want him to do. That, that is not the way... It works. We are not altering the fate of the universe. God controls the universe. It is His universe. It all belongs to Him. Even, even Jesus, get this. Jesus says, this is in John 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son of Man, uh, the Son also does in like manner. And then just a few verses later, in, in verse 30 of John chapter 5, 
I can do nothing on my own initiative, Jesus says. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus says, I don't seek anything on my own initiative. I'm always seeking God's will. It's a a great pattern. Jesus supplies a, a perfect pattern for us as we pray to conform to God's will. Not only in our person, but in our actions through obedience and service and prayer, we are seeking to conform ourselves to His will. Where is His will found? The Word of God. The Word of God. We can conform ourselves to that and we know that we are in God's will. Your critical situation, whatever it may be, there might be folks here right now who do not know what to do. God's completely in control. God is in completely in control. Pray to Him. Pray to Him. And you ought to be greatly comforted in the fact, really. Really, you should. This should comfort you. When you're in the middle of an emergency situation, it does, your, 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 your outcome doesn't hinge upon someone else's faithfulness to pray. How would you like that? Going in for emergency surgery, they're about to open you up, and last time, boy, I hope, boy, I hope somebody's praying. If it hinged on that, rather than the Lord, I'd be worried going into surgery. People just, you know, they have lapses. Myself, I forget things. God doesn't. God doesn't. He's always there to care for you. Um, we do pray for one another, and uh, we pray all the time. We'll get to that in a moment. Some might ask, why do we even pray? If it's God's will, that's a good question. We'll get to that. Uh, But let's first acknowledge, folks, when we pray, God is in supreme control. He is in control of our situations. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he got the thorn, the thorn in the flesh, remember, prayed three times to the Father. Three times he prayed, the Father said, My grace is sufficient for you. No record that, that Paul ever tried to band together dozens and dozens of people to try to, to force his way. God's grace is sufficient. He got denied. Uh, similar with King Hezekiah, if you remember from Isaiah chapter 38. He became mortally ill. Actually, Isaiah told him, get your house in order, Hezekiah, you are going to die. And, and he, he, he lamented Hezekiah says he turned to the wall, he faced the wall, and he began to pray to the Lord alone. And it says he wept bitterly. It's in Isaiah 38. Wept bitterly, praying to the Lord. He he didn't even solicit the great prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah's right, right within arm's reach probably, or not far away. He just poured himself out to the Lord, trusting in the Lord. And God's response to Hezekiah came through. Isaiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. That's the goodness of God. He can hear your prayer even when you're alone, even when you think there's no other hope. So here's what I'd like to ask. Folks, when when you pray, when you're praying, when you're kneeling, when you're praying, are you praying with your hope in the power of, of our Almighty God? Are you praying knowing that He can answer 
Or is your faith in praying in other people who are praying for you? That's the thing we've got to remember, is we aren't trusting in other people. Other people will fail us. God will never fail us. Because there seems to be these things, and they're not all horrible, but we seem to get to the point where we think if the prayer chain just reaches a few thousand more people, like the Facebook thing, you know, it's like share this and, or like this and say a prayer, and if we just get 10,000 of these, th- this child will be healed. You don't see that in Scripture. If God so wills. If God so wills, it makes you wonder really how God was able to heal anyone, as I've said before, before the invention of the Internet. God is in control. God is always in control. You want me to pray for you? I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray with you, whatever your situation is. I want to know what your prayer needs are. I'll pray. I'll demonstrate my love for you through prayer. I'll shoulder uh, your feelings in prayer. I'll intercede on your behalf to God and ask Him to change your situation. I'll ask that He shows mercy on you. I'll ask that He heal you. I'll ask that He will bless you. In fact, when, when I pray with you, I'll even ask the Lord if He's trying to tell me to open my heart. Maybe there's something I can do to actually answer your prayer. Right? We pray for one another. We need to be thinking of ourselves. Maybe I'm the solution to this person's prayer. Lots of reasons to pray for one another. Someone's in a tough situation, you might be the answer to God's prayer. In in fact, if God says in His Word that we should be bearing one another's burdens and you have the ability to help that person in their situation, God would say it is His will that you would be the answer to their prayer, right? Wonderful thing to have prayer. I'm also going to pray that we can embrace God's will in your life, whatever that will may be. As Christ was going to the cross and He's praying like sweats of blood, uh, droplets of blood there in Gethsemane, He was able to accept whatever the Father had for Him, knowing as we pray to God that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, right? Those who are called according to His purpose, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we're going through. We're going through a conforming to the image of His beloved Son. And we pray together corporately. We intercede for one another. You pray alone in your prayer closet. You can know that God is right there, able to hear, able to answer. Folks, the full power of the Father is at your disposal when you're praying according to His will. His full power is on display as He helps you to overcome those trials, as He conforms you to His Son. So the question is then, if God's purposes can't be thwarted, which you know Scripture says that they can't, if it can't be changed, is prayer practical? Is it really practical to do? Absolutely, folks. Absolutely, it's, it's practical. Is my prayer necessary? Absolutely. Absolutely necessary. Scripture says that it is. Scripture says that we shall pray for open doors to the gospel. Scripture says that we'll pray for people to be saved. Scripture says that we pray to beseech the Lord to send out laborers into the harvest. Will my prayer change your situation? Might help to change you. Might help to change me. How do we remain passionate 
and, and practical. Passionate in prayer and practical, knowing that God is sovereign over all things. I'm going to let a man much wiser than myself answer that. Got a message here from Charles Spurgeon. And uh, if any of you have heard of him, he was known as the Prince of Preachers. And uh, just amazing man of words, very godly, strong in sovereignty of God. I mean, you talk about Calvinists, he was a five-pointer. Very much believed in the sovereignty of God, a great preacher. And he writes this about prayer at a pastor's conference to other pastors. He says, brethren... Our faith also, resting upon the doctrines of the gospel and upon the God of the gospel, embraces the power of prayer. We believe in the prevalence of supplication. I am afraid that this belief is going out of fashion in the so-called Christian world. The theory of some is that prayer is useful to ourselves, but it cannot be operative upon God. That's what we're addressing, right? And much is to be said about the impossibility of the divine purposes being changed and the utter unlikelihood of a finite being affecting God by his cries. He says of himself, We also hold that the purposes of God are not changed. But. But, he says, What if prayer be a part of his purpose? And what if he ordains that his people should pray when he intends to give them blessings? Prayer is one of the necessary wheels of the machinery of providence. The offering of prayer is as operative in the affairs of the world and the production of events as the rise of the dynasties or the fall of nations. We believe that God, in very truth, hearkens the voices of men. Is that great? That prayer be a part of the machinery in the sovereignty of God. He wraps up by saying, To us, at any rate, prayer is no vain thing. We go to our chambers alone, believing that we are transacting high and real business when we pray. We do not bow the knee merely because it's a duty and a commendable spiritual exercise, but because we believe that into the ear of the eternal God we speak our wants, and that his ear is linked with a heart feeling for us and a hand working on our behalf. To us, true prayer is true power. That's good stuff. That is good stuff. Jesus knew that true prayer was true power. In critical times, Jesus prayed. He prayed. And in Luke 6, verse 12, that the prayer that he offers, it's very passionate. Very passionate. It goes on all night long. Encompass the whole night. It's also very practical. Very practical in nature. You might have a subtitle over top of, of this section of Scripture. It might say in your, in your Bible, the publishers might have added something like this, selecting the twelve, Right? Or choosing the twelve. I'm not exactly sure that is what Jesus, or the content of Jesus' prayers. I'm not sure that exactly represents the content. The event in Luke 6, it, it, this is a very crucial time, a critical time, as I said. Verse 12 says, It was at this time. Your translation might say, It was in these days. So, what do we naturally ask? Oh, in what days? 
What days? Well, that's a pretty simple question to answer. You just turn back to verse 11. And it says that the Pharisees were filled with rage. They discussed together what they might do to Jesus. We learned two weeks ago in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verse 18, that it was at this time the Pharisees were seeking all the more to kill Jesus. Remember that? Already by now they're trying to find a way to kill Him. They want to put Him to death. So it was in these days. These are the types of days. The conflict, it, it escalated The tension is there, and in the timeline of many trustworthy theologians who have mapped out Jesus' life, he's probably already halfway through his ministry, his three-year earthly ministry. Probably already 18 months in at this time. Uh, Probably be another 18 months before he offers up his body as a sacrifice for the sins of all who will believe. 18 months. Now folks, I've been here three years and eight months. 44 months. Not that long, is it? I I really haven't been there that long. Jesus has 18 months, a year and a half roughly, before he faces the cross, before his crucifixion, before the founding of the church. It was in these days. He, He doesn't have a whole lot of time left when you think about the time it takes to train men, to teach them, to spiritually condition them, to understand and receive the things of the Spirit of God. How much time does Jesus really have left? Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. He's had lots of disciples to this point. But he's going to die. He's soon to die. He's going to leave a small band of men behind, and they're supposed to build his church. Small little band of men. He's got 18 months. You know, folks, in his sovereignty, this is very important, also with prayer. In his sovereignty, God employs the services of men to build his church, to build Christ's church. Empowered by the Holy Spirit, yes, but nonetheless men. These are men just like us, and they need to be trained. I don't know how quickly you catch on. I'm slow. You don't believe me? Ask Gerald. 18 months. The clock is ticking. The enemies are seeking his life. They're lashing out at him. Jesus has a very limited time uh, to equip these men, and they're going to establish a foundation for his church. Of course, Christ always remaining the chief cornerstone. So in verse 12, we see Jesus, he goes up on the mountain, he prays, says they praise the whole night to God. This is the only place in, in Scripture where we're told that Jesus prayed through the whole night. I think it's a critical time. Very critical time. And here's the rub. It might challenge you, actually, it might chafe you, but that's okay. I really doubt, I, I sincerely doubt personally, that Jesus is trying to identify and select who the twelve are going to be. I, I doubt that. Hang with me. Sure, we know in Jesus' humanity, we know that at certain specific times, isolated times really, he set aside his divinity, that, that, that he, his omniscience, he, he would set aside at different times, such as the hour of his return. When the disciples asked, he's like, that, that's not for me to know, it's not for you to know, only the Father who is in heaven knows that, right? There are certain specific times. But when it comes to identity... Folks, there'd been a whole lot of water under the bridge with these guys. 
a whole lot of water under the bridge. Jesus, long before this, confronted Peter in the boat. He had talked already to James and John, and he told them, I'll make you fishers of men, to all of them. Andrew was with them as well. He's already told them that. I will make you fishers of men. Jesus is already, we saw uh, last chapter, he's called the tax collector, Levi. And he said, follow me. And, and Luke is showing Jesus, <laughs> he already repeatedly shows, he knows the heart of every man. Just by looking at him, whether it be the Pharisees or whatever, Jesus already knows the heart of everyone here and every man. Scripture isn't vague about that. Deciding to choose or select these 12 wasn't, wasn't his last minute fingers crossed. You know, boy, sure, better stay up late, better hope, hope I get the right ones. This is God in the flesh. He's not rolling dice. He's not coming in with a patch job at the last minute. I, I just don't buy that. God's way bigger than that. Christ is way bigger than that. We've already seen how when the Pharisees approached him, he could see their heart. The Holy Son of God chose these men long before this night. And even the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, this is Apostle Paul now, coming later, Galatians 1 verse 15, follow this. God who set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through His grace was pleased to reveal His Son in me so that I might preach. Paul the Apostle set apart from the womb. Preaching is the same purpose given for these other apostles in a parallel account in Mark chapter 3, verse 13. It says, And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom Himself He wanted. He summoned who He wanted and they came to Him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and so that he could send them out to preach. Same purpose as Paul, to be sent out to preach. The apostles are there, sent ones. That's, that's what apostles basically mean, sent ones. Isaiah indicates, the prophet Isaiah, that he was set apart from the womb. Jeremiah says the same thing, he was set apart from the womb. King David says, in, says to God uh, in Psalm 139.13, you wove me in my mother's womb. In your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when yet there was not yet one of them. Paul set apart for apostleship, for God's eternal purposes, from the womb. From the womb. That's not, that's not an anomaly. Paul isn't an anomaly. He's an apostle. It's the standard, folks. It's a scriptural standard. Christ set all apart from the womb. Jesus told them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. Jesus doesn't suggest he chose them on this night. He wasn't wringing his hands. He wasn't like, mm, man, I just, I'm not sure. You know, Peter, he's... He's really good, but he's a little impulsive. I don't know about him. Harold over there, a lot more level-headed, but no boldness to preach. I don't know what I'm going to do. See, see how ridiculous that great gets? Does that, does that look like Jesus at all? That doesn't look like Jesus. See how little that makes God when we know he's the sovereign creator of the universe? No, just like Paul, 
when Jesus laid his human eyes on Peter that first time, he could look on Peter, and though it was his human eyes for the first time, he could look on Peter with compassion and say, from the womb I knew you. I knew you. To Nathaniel, he said in John 1, verse 48, Before a Philip called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. Actually, Jesus saw him long before that. Long before that. Jesus chose these men long before that night, their identities. And in verse 13, when he came, he called together all his disciples. Mark says that he summoned all of them. Don't know how many of that. That could be dozens. It could be many dozens. We, we don't know. We don't know for sure. Uh, he separates out 12 whom he chose from before the foundation of the world. And Jesus chose them from among men. He chose them to come out from among men. He identified them among men that they would be the ones who would accompany Jesus. That's how he chose them there. He identified them before man. He knew them in the womb. He knew them. Paul isn't an anomaly. Folks, it's not a whole lot different with us. Except we're not called to be apostles. You've come to know Christ if you're a believer here. He knew you from the womb. Notion that Jesus didn't really know who the twelve would be until he prayed that night, this doesn't hold any theological weight. doesn't hold any water. So the question is, what was he praying for all night? What was he praying for? This passage, you, you might have noticed already, it doesn't tell us. It doesn't tell us. What I'd suggest to you, the contextual conditions of what's going on in those days, the resistance, the resentment, the pressure that was coming on Jesus, those contextual conditions, tells us some things. We also know the, the result in, in verse 13 that there's 12 men who are chosen apart from the, the remainder of the disciples. And he named them as apostles. We also know Jesus had a very limited amount of time. And before his crucifixion, he needs to leave behind laborers to enter into the harvest. In fact, Jesus, he's not short-sighted. He knows the apostles won't live forever either. He knows that you and I, we aren't going to live forever. So in our scripture reading earlier, from Matthew 9, verse 35, it says Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, teaching their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, this is a command, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. That Greek word there for beseech, it actually suggests a, a type of begging. Beg the Lord. Beg God to send workers into the harvest. That's his command to his disciples. And, and as a model for us, Jesus assured in John 5 verse 30, he didn't seek his own will, but he seeks the will of the Father who sent him. 
So my impression is that Jesus spent much of that night praying for the workers he was sending into the harvest. That would have been the Father's will. Pray for the workers. Pray for the laborers. Scripture instructs in Matthew 9, verse 38, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray that way. Later on, we'll see in Luke 10, verse 2, again, Jesus sending out, but this time it's going to be the 70 in pairs, right? To every city and every place. Jesus proclaims, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. That's what he tells the 70. And of course, in John 4, verse 35, this is perhaps uh, the most famous of these commands to send out laborers. Jesus told his disciples while in Samaria, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Again, that emphasis on God's will, right? Always. Always on God's will. And then he says to them, Do not say there are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows, another reaps, harvesting again. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Folks, this laboring, this praying to the Lord, this beseeching the Lord to send out laborers, it's not a small thing in Christian theology. It's not a minor part of the Bible. Not at all. God doesn't put a small emphasis on this one. This is a big part. This is a big part of the Bible. Sending laborers into the harvest. Huge focus in Scripture. Luke 6, Jesus realizes his time on earth is running short. The wolves are everywhere. I'm sending you out in the midst of wolves. They're always out there. In fact, when he comes down from praying from this mountain, he's going to go to a level place. He chooses the twelve and he's summons a bunch of people and says, large crowds begin to come to him. And at this point, he warns, beware the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. For inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Jesus is always seeking the Father's will. Always seeking the Father's will. He's always praying according to the Father's will. It is the Father's will that laborers be sent into the harvest. Very clear in Scripture that, that there might reap a harvest. Jesus was praying for laborers being sent into the harvest. He was praying very specifically for 12 laborers who are going to be sent into the harvest. Not to figure out who they are. He knows who they are. But he's praying for them in their future work and ministry. They're the next generation of laborers. You're like, I'm not convinced yet. I suspect... Some of you are familiar with John chapter 17. It's called Jesus' high priestly prayer, right? Right before Jesus is arrested and taken away, he offers up a prayer for his apostles, right? The high priestly prayer. He prayed for them. He prayed that they would come to the full understanding and knowledge of who Christ is. 
a full understanding. He prayed God would keep them in His name. That's in verse 11. Jesus prayed that just as He and the Father were one, that His disciples would also be one. Jesus prayed for unity among the men, among the laborers. He prayed to the Father in verses 14 and 15 that they wouldn't be of the world. That they wouldn't be part of the world. And that God would keep them from the evil one. That He would protect them and preserve them from the evil one. Jesus prayed in John 17 verse 17 that they would be sanctified in the truth. And that His word is truth. So that they'd be sanctified through the very word of God. He prayed for them. He prayed that they would be men of the book. Verse 18, Father, as you sent me into the world, I send them into the world. So he's praying for sending them into the world. He prayed for their ministry. He prayed for their mission. In verse 20 of John chapter 17, Jesus also prayed for you. Did you know that? He prayed for you. He said to the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. Who's that include? You. That's you. And he concluded his high priestly prayer right before his departure by asking the Father that we will all be bound together in unity and in love. If you would have been in Pastor Weiler's study this morning, you would have heard him emphasize the unity the harmony through diversity of different types of people, but all together in oneness. But listen to how Jesus closes his high priestly prayer in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, so that they may be one. Just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you yet, I have known you, and these have known you, that, that you sent me. And have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Folks, that's a model for prayer. That's how Jesus prays. Our prayers ever look like that? And all of these requests by Jesus to the Father, are they the Father's will? Are these prayer requests by Jesus the Father's will? He always prays according to the Father's will. Of course this is the Father's will. You can't get away from it. And if these things are the Father's will, unity, sanctification through the Word of God, loving one another, sending out the laborers, all of these things, if they're in the Father's will, is He going to answer them? Oh yeah. God will answer those prayers 
in the affirmative. They're his will. It's God's will that you and I, that we know, that we know Christ, we understand Christ, and that we're preserved in him. It's God's will that we grow in sanctification through the truth of the word. It's it's his will that we be kept from the world, that we be safe from the evil one. It's God's will that we be sent, just as Jesus was sent, and just as he sent those men. It's God's will. I don't know exactly what Jesus prayed all night on that mountain. I don't know. But we do see the result. And we end up with men who are being sent. They're sent ones. And we do know that praying for laborers, it's not a small part of the Bible. And the content that we pray for one another, as we are all laborers, is not superficial, folks. These should be major focuses of our prayers as we identify laborers, as we train the next generation, as we send out people. We ought to be praying for them ahead of time. Christ prayed for you. The the doctrines of unity and love as Christ prayed in His high priestly prayer. That ought to be our priority. Ought to be our priority. It's actually through displaying that love towards one another. That, that, that passion for one another, the unity amongst us, that Jesus says the world comes to know who God is because they see it in us. It's no small thing. It's no small thing. They'll see that the Father sent His Son and the Father loves them just as He loved us and just as He loved His Son. In John 17, Jesus Folks, he not even not only prayed for his apostles, he prayed for everyone who would believe. He prayed for you. I can't even imagine what he did on that night. That he would pray for you. That he would pray for me. That we would send laborers out into the harvest. And then he could pray for us by name because Scripture says that he wrote our name down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. He knew you. And now he sends you into the harvest. Folks, how can we not pray these prayers? Regardless of what Jesus prayed on the night on the mountain as he prayed all night. We know the result. He sent the men out. He sent the men out and they founded a church and they built a church and they loved one another and they were strengthened in one another and they had unity together. They served one another. Folks, what a picture of what we are to be in the church. Praise God. Uh, I'm going to do a biographical sketch of, of most of these apostles as we get to them. We've already covered Peter you know, James, John, others. And, and as we come, you know, we covered Levi already. As we come to their names in Scripture, let, let's treat on them at that point. Folks, But let's send out laborers. Let's send one another out. Let's strengthen one another. Let's, uh, let's do the work that Christ sent us to do. Let's pray.